Everybody can hear me? Yeah? Quiet room. Quiet, quiet room. Well, how's everybody doing tonight? There's just no excitement. So should I should I also be like Ben Stein? And just be like, hello. Tip show. Hi. Is there a door? It's a tip show. It's a tip show. How's it going? Friday night. Very exciting. Very exciting to be here on a Friday night with you. Very exciting to be here at a tip show. Just waiting to go ahead and start beginning a talking. All the rest. Uh-huh. 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 It's a fun show. It's very sexy. We we do a lot of things that are very sexy at the tip show. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We read a lot of things. We read requests and we... We, we talk to the people that are here. Uh-huh. It's very sexy. Very sexy. All right, guys. It's quick request time. If you have a request, you just go ahead. You put it in quotation marks. I go ahead and say it. Quick requests. Not a single one. That entire I fucking held that note as long as I could, and not a single request came up that whole time. Uh uh. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Little girl, I'm warning you. Behave for daddy. Hello, baby girl. She wants the D. Want to cuddle? <laughs> Neil before Zod. I can't I can't read the word Neil without thinking of before Zod coming after it. Like I just grew up on Superman 2. I was kind of super into it. Uh I wasn't even into Superman at all. I was into the villains. <laughs> I was into Annie Lennox. And the two guys that she was with. That was Annie Lennox, right? All dressed in black and everything. Oh my god, that's so racist of me. That was Anne Colter. I'm racist about Anne's. All of all Anne's are kind of the same thing to me. Landry, Sanders, Coter, Rice. I'll admit it, all of the Anns kind of blend together for me. I'm a little bit of an Ann racist. Now, that's how you can tell it's a racist thing, because if you spell it A-Y-N, I know that there's a difference. It's a different Ann. That's how I can tell them apart. You're an Ayn. You're an Ayn. How's everybody doing tonight? We're just doing a quick request. I'm not seeing them. Here we go, finally. Here it's coming. I'm the Juggernaut, bitch, which I've actually said out loud in real life. I'll tell you the Juggernaut story here in a second. I've actually said, unironically, I'm the Juggernaut, bitch, to real people. To real people. Aloud, unironically. Come here, baby girl. Sit on my lap and kiss me. Hello to Cam Cam. Let's see if there's any requests on the Twitch chat. There's nothing on the Twitch chat. 
People came in and people left and there's nobody watching on Twitch at all. It's just me. Oh, that's a little bit sad. Oh, after all the girls said like, hey, please put this up. It's literally just me broadcasting on Twitch with nobody watching. Fantastic. <laughs> Pull me in close and feel how much I want you. Quick request, mine. Gotta keep them coming or I move on to the next segment. You are such a good girl, kitten. The beating heart under the floorboards speaks to me. There! There! There is the heart you seek! You know, from a little bit later on, the same story. <clears throat> With a voice like mine, did you miss me, little girl? Look me in the eyes. Daddy loves, loves, loves all the babies. I'm so proud of you, princess. When there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Firmly grasp it in your hand. All right, new girls, jeez. If you don't want to be here, find some other place to be. Don't bite your lip. Okay, we're going to be wrapping it up. Quick request. Wrapping up soon. The benefit to being on Twitch is that you'll actually be able to see me read along with you. And therefore, if you want to read along or scan along as you listen to me, all of that text is on screen for you. And you can see me mess up over and over and over again. Oh, little girl, daddy's not done with you yet. Don't test me. I'll just grip you that much. Tighter. Wait for me in your dreams. I will meet you there. Daddy needs to fuck you. Now. Come on. Give me the snuggles. Okay, girls, wrapping up. Quick quotes. Moving on to requests pretty soon here.
And we'll finish with Give Me Hugs, Princess. Thank you all, especially new girls, for being brave enough to go ahead and put that out there. Again, very much appreciated. We'll go ahead and move right on in to poetry coming up now. All right. Top note, Adder of Roses. No one ever thought to bring me blush roses before. How and this color, so luscious, seem so innocent. Butter ivory dipped in primrose, and they are open, slow as a honeycomb. Or the tentative blossoming of trust. Middle note, sandalwood. In the dusk, I stumble over roots and shadows. He insists in a whisper that we press on. Then he takes my hand and teaches me the names of the flowers in the dark of the deepest heartwood. Base note, ambergris. The fluke breaks and the surface smooth as grace, an anomic song. Salt, sweet, water. There are things I have grown used to needing, but never grow used to. His arms warm around me, the long migration home. Moria Egan, Notes on a Potion. Okay. Oh, what to me, the little room that was brimmed up with the prayer and rest. He bade me out into the gloom, and my breast lies upon his breast. Oh, what to me my mother's care, the house where I was safe and warm, the shadowy blossom of my hair will hide us from the bitter storm. Oh, hiding hair and dewy eyes, I am no more with life and death. My heart upon his warm heart lies. My breath is mixed into his breath. Yeats, The Heart of a Woman. Lay you sleeping head, my love, human, on the faithless arm. Time and fevers burn away individual beauty from thoughts, thoughtful children, and the grave proves the child ephemeral. But in my arms till break off day let living creatures lie, mortal, guilty, but to me the entirely beautiful. Soul and body have no bounds to lovers as they lie upon her tolerant, enchanted slope in their ordinary swoon. Grave the visions Venus sends of supernatural sympathy, universal love and hope. While an abstract insight wakes along the glaciers and the rocks and hermits, carnal ecstasy. Certainly, Fidelity, on the stroke of midnight pass, like vibrations of a bell, and fashionable madmen raise their pedantic, boring cry. Every farthing 
of the cost. All the dreaded cards foretell shall be paid, but from this night not a whisper, not a thought, not a kiss, no look be lost. Beauty, midnight, vision dies. Let the winds of dawn that blow softly round your dreaming head such a day of welcome show. I, a knocking heart, may breast, find our mortal world enough. Noons of dryness find your fed by involuntary powers. Nights of insult let you pass, watched by every human love. Lullaby, W. H. Auden. <clears throat> One more quick little piece of, uh, well, this isn't quite poetry. I thought it was, my mistake. When Narcissus died in the pool of his pleasure, changed from a cup of sweet waters into a cup of salt tears. And the Oreds came weeping through the woodland that they might sing to the pool and give it comfort. And when they saw that the pool had changed from a cup of sweet waters into a cup of salt tears, they loosened the green tresses of their hair and cried to the pool and said, We do not wonder that you should mourn in this manner, Narcissus. So beautiful was he. But was Narcissus beautiful, said the pool. We should know the better than you, answered the Orids. Us did he ever pass by, but you he sought for, and would lie on your banks and look down at you, and in the mirror of your waters he would mirror in his own beauty. And the pool answered, But I love Narcissus because... As he lay on my banks and looked down at me, in the mirror of his eyes, I saw ever my own beauty mirrored. Mm. What a cheeky pool of water, eh? At 8 a.m. it lay upon Giuseppe's newsstand, still damp from the presses. Giuseppe, who was cunning of his ilk, philandered on the opposite corner, leaving his patrons to help themselves, no doubt on a theory related to a hypothesis of the watched pot. This particular newspaper was, according to its custom and design, an educator, a guide, a monitor, a champion, and a household counselor, and a vade mecum. From its many excellencies might be selected three editorials. One was in simple and chaste, but illuminating language directing to parents and teachers, deprecating corporal punishment for children. Another was an accursive and significant warning addressed to a notorious labor leader who was on the point of instigating his clients to a troublesome strike. The third was an eloquent demand that the police force be sustained and aided in everything 
that tended to increase its efficiency as public guardians and servants. Besides these more important chidings and requisitions upon the store of good citizenship, was a wide prescription of form or procedure laid out by the editor of the heart-to-heart column in the specific case of a young man who had complained to the ab- <laughs> oh my goodness abducracy of his lady love, teaching him how he might win her. Again, there was on the beauty's page a complete answer to a young lady inquired who desired an monition towards a securing of bright eyes, rosy cheeks, and beautiful countenance. One other item requiring special cognizance was a brief personal running thus. Dear Jack, forgive me. You were right. Meet me Corner Madison and Dash TH at 8.30 this morning. We leave at noon. Patient. At eight o'clock, a young man with a haggard look and a feverish gleam of unrest in his eyes dropped a penny and picked up the top paper as he passed Giuseppe's stand. A sleepless night had left him a late riser. There was an office to be reached by nine and a shave and a hasty cup of coffee to be crowded into the interval. He visited his barber shop and then hurried on his way. He pocketed his paper, meditating a belated perusal on the luncheon hour. At the next corner, it fell from his pocket, carrying with all his pairs of new gloves. Three blocks he walked, missed the gloves, and turned back fuming. Just on the half hour, he reached the corner where lay the gloves and the paper. But he strangely ignored what he had come to seek. He was holding two little hands as tightly as ever he could and looking into two patient brown eyes while joy rioted into his heart. Dear Jack, she said, I knew you would be here on time. I wonder what she means by that, he was saying to himself, but it's all right. It's all right. A big wind puffed out the west, picked up the paper from the sidewalk, and opened it out, sent flying into a whirling down a side street. Up the street was driving a skittish bay to a spider-wheel buggy. The young man who had written to his heart-of-heart editor for a recipe that might win her for whom he sighed. The wind, with a prankish flurry, flapped the flying paper against the face of the skittish bay. There was a lengthened streak of bay mingled with the red of running gear that stretched itself out for four blocks. Then, a water hydrant played its part in the cosmology. The buggy became matchwood as foreordained, and the driver rested quietly where he had been flung from the asphalt in front of a certain brownstone mansion. They came out and had him inside very promptly, and there was the one who made herself a pillow for his head and cared no curious eyes, bending over and saying, Oh, it was you. It was you all the time, Bobby. 
couldn't you see? And if you die, why, so must I, and... But in all the wind we must hurry to keep touch with our paper. Policeman O'Brien arrested it as a character dangerous to traffic, strained its disheveled leaves with his big, slow fingers. He stood a few feet from his family entrance of the Shandon Bells Café. One headline he spelled out ponderously. The papers to the front in a move to help the police. But whisht! The voice of Danny, the head bartender, through the crack of the door. Here's a nip for you, Mike, old man. Behind the widespread amicable columns of the press, Policeman O'Brien received swiftly the nip of the real stuff. He moves away, stalwart, refreshed, fortified to his duties. Might not the editor man view with pride the early, the spiritual, the literal fruit that had had blessed his labors? Policeman O'Brien folded the paper and poked it playfully under the arm of a small boy that was passing. The boy was named Johnny, and he took the paper home with him. The sister was named Gladys, and she had written the beauty editor of the paper, asking for the predictable touchstone of beauty. That was weeks ago, and she had ceased to look for an answer. Gladys was a pale girl with dull eyes and a discontented expression. She was dreading to go up to the avenue to get some braid. Beneath her skirt, she pinned two leaves of the paper Johnny had brought. When she walked, the rustling sound was an exact imitation of the real thing. On the street, she met the brown girl from the flat below and stopped to talk. The brown girl turned green. Only silk at five dollars a yard could make the sound she was hearing when Gladys moved. The brown girl, consumed by jealousy, said something spiteful and went on her way with pinched lips. Gladys proceeded towards the avenue. Her eyes now sparkled like Jägerfontines. A rosy bloom visited her cheeks. A triumphant, subtle, vivifying smile transfigured her face. She was beautiful. Could the beauty editor have seen her then? There was something in her answer in the paper, I believe, about cultivating the feeling towards others in order to make plain features feel attractive. The labor leader, with whom the paper solemnly and weighty editorial junction was laid out, was the father of Gladys and Johnny. He picked up the remains of the journal when Gladys had ravished a cosmetic of silken sounds. The editorial did not come under his eye, but instead it was greeted by one of those ingenious and specious puzzle problems that enthrall alike the simpleton and the sage. The labor leader tore out half of the page, provided himself with a table, pencil, and paper, and glued himself to the puzzle. Three hours later, after waiting vainly for him at the appointed place, the more conservative leaders declared and ruled in favor of arbitration, and the strike, with its attendant dangers, was averted. Subsequent additions to the paper referred, 
in colored links to the clarion tone of its successful denunciation of the labor leader's intended designs. The remains leaves of the active journal also went loyally to the probing of its potency. When Johnny returned from his school, he sought a secluded spot and removed the missing column from inside his clothing, where they had been artfully distributed so as to successfully defend such areas as are generally attacked during scholastic castigations. Johnny attended a private school and had trouble with his teacher. As has been said, there was an excellent editorial against corporal punishment in that morning's issue, and no doubt it had its effect. After this, can anyone doubt the power of the press? Oh, Henry, it's pretty good. I, I, I didn't see him using the paper to stop his ass from getting hit at the end there, so... Uh... Pretty good, pretty good, pretty good. Pretty fun story. Thank you for the request. <clears throat> uh, if we could put up the link for the tip jar now, Allie, I would deeply appreciate it. Thank you very much for that. Tip jar up. If you do want to go ahead and give a tip for everything that you're hearing tonight, I would very much appreciate it. Let's just make sure that absolutely nobody nowhere else is talking. Nope. Let's get that up. <clears throat> the sun, red from the haze in the sky, sets behind the mountains and casts a pink tone across the lake. The rose-gold water glistens with the dissipating sunlight. I walk down by the water's edge, letting the wind blow my jacket back. There's a fresh smell in the air as the breeze carries over dandelion fluff from across the water. I take a deep breath. The warm air fills my lungs. I've never seen a place so calm and serene. I only wish that all days could be like this, a gentle dip into nature to cleanse yourself. This valley I have found it is so beautiful, and I sit in the sand to think of a name suitable for it. A quiet rhythm ruminates across the valley from behind me. The soft notes of uh, ooh, uh, marimba fade into my consciousness. I turn around to find a little boy staring at the ground. Surprised that I am not alone, I jump a little, despite the Maramba's song's warning. Oh, sorry, I didn't know you were behind me. I gave a short laugh to let him know I'm friendly. He wears a beige sash across his chest and a rust-colored cloth around his legs. A band wraps around his head and his feathers and his back, bright against his back hair, pulled behind his neck. In his hand, dangling at his sides, is a small music box, nothing on the chestnut wood besides gears and a spinning key. May I ask what your name is? He takes a few steps closer and sits behind me, beside me, staring at the water. Is everything all right? I ask, looking around. I can't seem to find anyone he could have come here with. Perhaps he is lost. 
He places the music box in the sand and slows it to a stop. Watching the waves curve around the sand, he whispers something that I can't quite hear. What was that? I lean toward him a bit, trying to look at his face, but his black curls hide it. Do you hear the voices? His voice is quiet and shaky. He's unnaturally still. Before I can respond, he turns to face me, but he does not have eyes. It is empty where they should be. I flinch back a bit at him, attempting to reassure myself that I am making this up, that maybe I am dreaming. The little boy whispers again, harsher this time. Do you hear the voices? The little boy then Whilst still facing me, his arm lifts and points at the lake. There is blood dripping from his pale fingertips. He shrieks, his voice cracking, his body trembling. Listen to the voices. I stand up, backing away from the child, but as I do, I step backward in the lake and fall in. I sputter for air as I come back up. I lift my arms and wipe the water from my eyes, but the water is sticky. It's thick. And as I open my eyes, I see that it is a dull red and very murky. The water is at my waist. Ashes slowly creep their way from the sky, dissipating in the water. I thrash around, attempting to get out, but the cold and unforgiving water seem to weigh me down. And suddenly, it's not the water holding me back. I feel something grab at my leg, a hand, a human hand. Screaming, I try and shake it off, try to run away, but another grabs at my other ankle. I look down at the water and watch helplessly as bodies start to float to the surface all around me. One tilts its head towards me as the blood seeps from its mouth. It stares at me with lifeless eyes, grayed skin that cracks at the corner of its mouth. Stop, stop, I scream, trying to pull away. A shadow crosses over the lake. I look upwards into the ashy fog, and I see the darkness of a massive creature, human-like, with extended limbs and an elongated face, almost that of a beak. There is a rumbling a dissonant symphony of a thousand voices all layered over each other. Each voice arrives at slightly different times than the one before it, and then their incessant buzzing echoes across the dark valley. This is our land, shrieks the voices. Leave us. And then I awoke, gasping for air, laying wet on the sand where I first sat down. I was all alone except for the little music box singing softly beside me. There was not a trace of the boy, not even his footsteps left beside in the stand. There was only the music box. There was absolutely no trace of writing talent. Now, I may have added a line there. My apologies. Uh, sorry, 
but uh, the that you read that whole there was no connection to anything. It was just all a dream the whole time. So the last line may as well have been, "I had to write this the night before I turned it in." <laughs> then there was something else, and then there was something else, and then there was something else, and none of it connected. All right. I'm definitely going to piss somebody off if I keep talking about cell stuff. <laughs> I used to write like that, too. But then I went to high school. <clears throat> Here we go. <clears throat> We've got two more left. <clears throat> this is, uh, is going to be... <laughs> This is going to be a big one. Uh, I'm kind of like stabilizing myself. <clears throat> uh, this has been requested before. It's a little too long to, to do every single night that it pops up. But here we go. This is a bit of fanfic. It's a bit of fanfic for a show I've seen a little bit called Once Upon a Time. And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna give you my knowledge of the show once upon a time. So I really like an actor named Robert Carlyle. He's one of my favorites. And he, I found out that he was gonna be on a new show called Once Upon a Time. I didn't know anything about it. And so I just tuned in, you know? Uh so I tuned in and I see one of my favorite actors, just one of my favorite fucking actors, uh, just dressed up like a Jewish golem stereotype, just sitting there on screen all like fully in makeup, being all like, <laughs> and that's like all he does. And I, I'm like shocked. I'm sitting there like my arms are crossed. I'm like. Robert Carlyle, what? And, like, I have to watch another episode, right? I have to watch a second episode after I see him do that. And so I'm thinking, like, well, that's not going to happen every episode. Oh, yeah, motherfuckers! I watched the whole first season of Once Upon a Time because I keep going, well, there's no way that they're going to keep doing that every week. Oh, they keep doing that every week. Every single week of Once Upon a Time, I've only seen the first season. Every single week of Once Upon a Time, they do two things that I couldn't fucking believe ever. Every time I tuned in, I'm like, they're not going to do this. And they would do it every week, at least season one. First thing they would do every week. They, there's two bad guys on the show. There's a witch and there's an evil, I don't know what he is, leprechaun... Genie. I don't know what kind of fairy tale thing he's supposed to be. That was never made clear to me. They call him Rumpelstiltskin, but what is Rumpelstiltskin? You don't. You, there's there's not Rumpelstiltskins in mythology. So what is he? <laughs> so he's a genie, or he's an elf, or he's a something, right? Like he wants to fuck the shit. Out of, like, everybody on the show, everybody, every woman on the show, right? So they've got to reproduce sexually. So he's something magical. He's an elf. He's a genie. He's a, he's a short giant. I don't know. 
But every fucking week, they would be all like, well, one of these magic witches couldn't be responsible for this magic curse. Every week, the good guys would sit around and be like, there's a magic curse. Do you think one of the two magic people's responsible for it? No. Okay. They would have that discussion every week. There's two magical evil creatures in town, and they would never be all like, well, let's shoot them. Let's go knock on their door. Let's go deal with them. Never. Never. They would just be all like, well, there's two magical creatures in town, and there's a curse. What do you want to do? Let's investigate. Every week. Every week. The second thing they would do every week, there was flashbacks. There was flashbacks every fucking week. Now, that's fine. But every time they would go the flashback, they would have imminent physical danger. They would have, like, a knife to someone's throat who's in the flashback, and then they would cut to commercial break dramatically. Every fucking week! I can't begin with... Every week they'd be all like, here's this person in modern times at the start of this story. Now let's watch their flashback. Uh-oh! They're in trouble in their flashback! I wonder if they're gonna make it out okay! Every week. Every week they would be all like, Prince, Char- Prince Charming, who's walking around, he's like a waiter or some shit. He should have been the sheriff, but he wasn't. The sheriff was the guy from Fifty Shades of Grey, which was super weird, because he just left the show. He was like the only guy who was all like, oh, this is bullshit. I'm going to get a different career. (laughs) Everybody else stuck with it. Anyway, the sheriff's kind of a bad guy. Prince Charming is like a waiter or some shit. And I remember the episode where I'm like, I'm going to watch this to the end of the season. But I'm never watching another episode again. And so far, it's been true. Prince Charming is literally fighting a dragon in a cave. Literally. That's not a figurative thing. It's a flashback. And he's literally fighting a dragon in a cave in season one. I don't know where he, what the fuck he's going to do in season two. If that's season one. But here we are. So he's got his shield and his sword in the cave. And the fire, and the dragon comes out, and it's a cheap show, so they can't really, like, have a fight. So the dragon comes out, and he's all like, I'm a dragon! And it does a close-up of, of Prince Charming's face, and he's all like, oh, no! And then, and that was kind of Matthew Berry, and then the music comes in. So the, the swelling music of, oh, no, comes in. Da-da-da-da-da! And Prince Charming, who's apparently played by Matthew Berry in this version, goes, oh, no! Not a dragon! And it cuts to commercial break. Comes back from commercial break, Prince Charming is, you know, he's all like, what can I get you? Okay, do you want rice with that? Okay, but we can't substitute that for toast. No, we can't substitute that for toast. No, we can't substitute that for toast. Yeah. Okay. Rice or beans? Great. Okay, I'll get that back to you in one second. Because that's what they do on that show when it's not interesting. And then it cuts back to the dragon fight. Now, again, he's not really fighting the dragon. There's just a shot of a guy in costume with a sword and a shield and some fake rocks. And they're all like, hide behind it! Hide behind it! Because he's just an actor, right? There's no dragon or anything. And so he's like, 
And they like they put in a little CGI fire, put a little CGI shadow, and then the dragon breathes fire right at the motherfucker. It's the big moment of the show, right? It's the big hour of the show. And he raises his shield, and he blocks the fucking fire. He's like, ah! But the fire's intense, so we don't know if he's going to hold the shield. So it cuts to another commercial break! There's two commercial breaks in this fucking flashback where we know he's alive. There's two. There's two of like, uh-oh, is he going to make it? Is he going to make it? Oh, no, what's Charles going to make it? Guys, is he going to fit the dragon? I don't know if it's going to fit the dragon. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. So that's the only thing I know about Once Upon a Time is that it's a it's a whole one fucking season of that. And in season four or five, I guess by that point, like every Disney character ever is in the fucking town. Because there's not that many. There's a couple, but there's no like Winnie the Pooh in the town. But I guess by like season three, Anna and Elsa are in it and shit. But somebody showed me something from season four, okay? Or five, I'm not sure. In which a very, I'm just going to describe it because I don't know what was happening. Someone sent it to me out of context for the laughs. In which a very young, attractive black woman is just walking around a kind of pirate ship restaurant, as you do. And she starts singing. And she starts singing about how she's a mermaid. And I'm like, go on. Because I was like, well, this is interesting. Did they, did, they, did they change Ariel's casting? Did they make her a young black woman instead? Because that would be very interesting to me. Ariel's, of course, known for her red hair and also her, her fish uh, parts. And this woman has legs. So let's go with it. So she's singing and she's singing this song about how she used to have, like, sea creature parts. <laughs> she, had, she had fish parts. Now she doesn't. She's kind of excited about it. She's singing to a dude. He's pretty good looking. And <laughs> he's into it. And I start to realize, wait a minute. This isn't Ariel. <laughs> this is Ursula. <laughs> yeah, I'm watching Ursula's backstory, and before Ursula falls into the water, becomes a sea witch, she's just like a beautiful, like little Rihanna. You know, she's just like a beautiful, like adorable, like amazing, gorgeous, like. Black girl working on a pirate ship, and then she gets thrown in the water. She becomes the fucking most disgusting, evil Cree mantra ever made. By the way, the town has no black people. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> I know. I watched a whole season. I kept waiting for Sheriff Graham to arrest the one black guy who came into town. It never happened. 
I mean, to be fair, though, to be fair, though, guys, to be fair, though, it is a show based on Disney properties, so there there really can't be a lot of black or Asian people. <laughs> Woo! I am never going to be in the MCU. Ah, uh, it's never going to happen. Never going to be in the MCU. I have I have one comment on that one, right? The MCU has two. I don't know if you know this. The MCU, if you don't know this, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, kind of a big deal for me. It's got two Asian actors. And then I just found out that of the two Asian actors, one of them's only half. And I'm like, are you fucking, what? <laughs> Mattis isn't even fully Asian? What the fuck? Did they choose her to make a fucking point? Oh, you want more inclusivity? All right. All right. We'll hire some more diverse people, but they'll all be 50 to 75% Scandinavian. What are you going to do? What are you going to do, Internet? We're Disney, baby. You can't take us out. You're going to watch all of our shows about mermaid waitresses and sheriff waiters and, and prince waiters. Oh, yeah. Everybody's waiting a fucking table on that show. Everybody was waiting a table. Somebody says that Rumpelstiltskin was a goblin. I do not think that is true. Goblins do not have that kind of power. I hope. Otherwise, we're fucked. You're telling me if we come across like 20 goblins, it's all over for humanity? Are you telling me like it only takes like 50 goblins to fuck the whole thing up? Goblins are that powerful? I don't think so. Goblins are weak. You guys have your mythology wrong. Goblins, your kobolds, your imps. These are on the lesser. These are the things, like, if you have to run into a mythological creature, you're like, oh, it's just a goblin. We're cool. Oh, it's just a bogan. We're fine. I still don't know what a kobold is because every single thing displays them differently. Sometimes they look like dogs. Sometimes they look like pigs. Sometimes they just look like little fur monsters. I've never, I, you never fucking, the kobolds always look different. Okay. I got to stop now before I get too lost on a rant. I did the, uh, I did what I know about once upon a time. And now let's do once upon a time fanfic. <clears throat> In the shop, there are rules. There are very specific and very particular rules. Miss French is very aware of them. They were listed to her on her first day as Mr. Gold's assistant. Thou shalt not move any object from the shelf on which it is placed, but to clean it. Thou shalt not sit on the counter on any occasion. Thou shalt not open any of the boxes or jars on the top shelf below the counter. Thou shalt not chew gum while working. Thou shalt not disturb Mr. Gold unless it is something 
vitally important. Izzy French doesn't really like rules. She likes to decide her own fate, and rules kind of get in the way of that. Okay, she agreed to be here, to help her dad out, even though it's her own stupid fault for getting in debt again. Her, he's her father, after all, and he should know better than dealing with gold. Everyone should. Anyway, Mr. Gold is out on business, so he can't see that she's popping sweet pink bubbles and sitting on the counter, reading a beat-up copy of Pride and Prejudice. He'll never know that she opened up all the boxes under the counter just to see what the big deal was. He probably won't even notice that she switched some of the jars around for the fun of it. Izzy hates the fact that she still has to pay for her dad's screw-ups. The only thing that makes it okay is that Mr. Gold is... Interesting. He's a hard-ass boss, but that's not a big surprise. He has the worst reputation in town, so she didn't expect him to be all flowers and kittens. He's funny, though. Not funny in a way that most people would laugh at, but funny in a way that Izzy likes. Dark and bitter and sarcastic. Sometimes... He says something bitchy about a recent customer, and she'll snigger into her dusting. She knows it probably makes her weird, but Izzy likes being that way. She likes being unexpected in much more adventurous ways than even Ruby. Ruby might dye her hair and wear hot pants up her arse, but Izzy does it in ways that people would never expect. She's a bookworm. That's what they call her, because she works at a library when she's not working for gold. She wears sundresses and pigtails and hardly any makeup at all. They don't know she's got a tattoo. Not even her father knows about that. Most of them don't even know she has her tongue pierced, because... Shh! You don't talk in a library. She sprawls on her back, propping one foot on top of the cash register, kicking her sundress up, and turns another page. She used to find Darcy interesting and sarcastic, but he's not nearly sarcastic enough now. She wonders how Lizzie Benaw would take Gold's cattiness probably with a smart response and a raised eyebrow. She's halfway through when she realizes that she's not alone. The sneaky bastard must have crept in the back door to check on her, and he's standing at the entrance of the back shop, hands on top of his cane. How he moved without her hearing the familiar tapping, she doesn't know. But she knows... She's in trouble. Izzy considers her options. There's the groveling apology option, which she discards at once. That's just not her at all. 
There's the feigning oblivious option, which would just be childish. She settles on finishing the page option. She uncrosses her ankles on top of the register, her skirt a puddle around her hips on the counter, and takes her time getting to the end of the page. That done, she reaches under the counter and pulls one of the blank receipts he keeps there out to use as a bookmark, then swings her legs down. She meets his eyes with defiance as she arranges her skirt more modestly. Miss French, he murmurs, I thought the rules were quite specific. She pushes herself down from the counter. I wasn't sitting on it, she points out. I was laying on it. He inclines his head. Well, I suppose that's one less rule broken, he murmurs. What about the rest? She winds her eyes. What do you mean? I mean that the seeds of Babylon should not be on the same shelf as the angel wings, he says without looking away from her. His cane cuts through the air, pointing from one shelf to another, where she moved the jars around. The lids have been removed and the boxes beneath the counter. He takes a step closer to her. And I can't help but notice you're chewing some of that ridiculous gum. She's getting good at reading his moods, and she can tell for a fact that he's not really mad at her. Maybe it was just the lying on the counter that did it. She has good legs. They may have distracted him a little. She licks her index finger and thumb innocently, then plucks the gum from her mouth and drops it in the trash can. She'd have to be blind to miss the way his eyes watched her tongue. Interesting. There's one rule I didn't break, she said, smiling. He raised an eyebrow, and she pauses only a second before stepping closer, pushing the boundaries. Can be fun sometimes, especially when he's looking at her like that. I didn't disturb Mr. Gold. His eyes fix on her face and slide down her body as if he's undressing her with them. He leans a little closer until his face is so close to hers she can feel how warm his skin is. I wouldn't say that, my dear, he murmurs. She's never been this close to him before, and his eyes are back on hers, and she's never had anyone look at her like that before. I'm sorry. She breathes, though she's not sure what she's apologizing for. Not yet, he whispers, and he catches her arms and spins her around and presses her back before she's even had a moment to think. You broke the rules, dear, and for that, I think you deserve strict reprimand. Any other day, any other time, she would have stomped on his foot, elbowed him in the gut, or just pepper-sprayed him. But he was looking at her like she was something special to him. And even now, his hands on her belly, and his stroking and gentle, even in his growling, <clears throat> even if he's growling in her ear. Put your hands on the counter, he says. It's not a shout, 
or a whisper. His voice is calm and steady, and his hand is moving in soothing circles. She is not afraid of him. She knows she could never be afraid of him. Show me what you can do, what you're told for once. She tilts her head to glance at him from the corner of her eye. What are you going to do to me? she whispers. His cane brushes against the outside of her right leg, trailing up, and she shivers down the skirt with it. The tip is cold metal, and she squeaks. I remember corporal punishment, he murmurs, and there's something in his voice, just like when he's at his most sarcastic. It's dark and wicked, and it's directed at her. I've been told that spare the rod, and you spoil the shop staff. You can't, she protests, but it's half-hearted, and she's too curious, too intrigued, far too interested to see just how far he will take it. My shop, dear, he murmurs and swats her thigh lightly with his stick. Izzy exclaims in surprise, it doesn't hurt, but it was unexpected. Mr. Gold, he moves alongside her, hands on the counter. Please, Miss French, he murmurs, a lesson must be learned. She looks at him, his dark eyes, and sees the challenging twitch at his mouth. He always liked pushing her buttons to get a response, and now he hit her giant red, are you a complete wuss button? She sticks out her tongue and puts her hands on the edge of the counter as she's told. Good girl, he murmurs. His cane brushes against both thighs, dragging up. Her skirt is swaying, ticking against her calves. Now, bend forward, just a little. He leans down to breathe in her ear. I wouldn't want you to strain yourself. She shivers pleasantly, and then again when his lips brush her ear. Now, Miss French. The hand was just on her belly, draws her hair back from her face. I want you to tell me which rule you broke first. She gazes sidelong at him. The jar's under the counter. The cane moves in slow circles on her backside. Specifically, dear, he murmurs. Open them all? Looked in them all? Her words cut off at a squeak when his cane strikes her backside sharply through the dress. That might have been dangerous, he murmurs, his finger brushing the edge of her jaw. They were just... <sighs> he swats again, more sharply this time. She looks around, more offended. His face is close to hers, his eyes dark. This shop is full of dangers, dear, he whispers to her. If I tell you not to touch something, there's a reason. The cane brushes again, dragging fabric against stinging skin. It shouldn't feel good, but it does, tingling. I'll tell you the rules to keep you safe. Safe, she echoes. Safe, he murmurs. Now, the second rule. Gum, 
she whispers. Pink gum? His hand is back on her stomach, moving in a circle. You know I dislike it. The cane shrills in the air as she yelps at a warming stripe lands across her buttocks. She barely has time to catch her breath, and there's another and another. I really, he whispers a word with each strike, dislike gum. No gum, she breathes, her backside tingling. Got it. He slides the cane slowly across the offending skin. Really? Izzy shivers, then yelps again when he spanks her again. Miss French, I asked you a question. Really? she exclaims. Good, he murmurs, lifting the cane away. His hand on her belly moves, and her skirt is drawn up an inch at a time. Now, next rule. Moving things. She whispers, it's getting kind of hard to breathe, and she can see people peering in the window at items, and that makes it worse. If they come in and find her like this, it'll be the talk of the town. Gold doesn't seem to give a damn. How many? He asks, his voice a low growl. I I don't remember. The cane strikes the back of her bare thigh, and it stings more than her backside, and she's amazed her legs don't buckle. I don't think that's a good answer, dear, he whispers. You move them, so you must know. I want to know what you moved. She looks up as he runs the cane distractingly over the back of her thighs, the wood and metal smooth and cold, sliding against her like no one's business. She tries to remember, searches the shelves and trembles. The angel wings, the seeds of Babylon. Well remembered, dear. He murmurs close to her ear, but I've told you them. Now I want you to know what you remember. She breathes deep, tries to concentrate, but he's making it difficult. The wood is really, really smooth, and it's sliding up and down the tremors or running through her, and she wants to just keep him doing that. The cane hisses in the air, and she yelps as it catches her just below the buttocks. Mr. Gold answers, dearie. He whispers, and she can hear the wicked delight in his voice. A lesson to be learned, remember. That doesn't involve you rubbing yourself all over my walking stick. It should, she thinks, blowing out of breath and forcing herself to remember what she did. The shelves by the window, there was something there, a box. A cane's tip is tracing on the back of her knee. It's sliding up under her skirt. It's cold. She wonders if he would actually use it to. Another stripe is laid across her backside. (sighs) Answers dearly. I'm not getting any younger. There was a box, she managed to say. One... With a star on the lid? It's by the glass cabinet now. Hmm. He looks around. I see one more thing. She tilts her head to look at him, panting softly as the cane slides along the curve where her buttocks meets her thigh. What? 
I can see one more thing that has been moved. It's impossible. He can't possibly have checked the whole shop. You're, you're joking, right? The curve gets a sharp, stinging swat as she squeals. I never joke, he whispers, the last item, dear. The cool wood soothes the reddening skin again. She knows that her backside must have more stripes than a zebra by now, and she shivers all the way down to her toes. The last. The counter is slippery under her hands, and she tries to think, tries to remember. There were jewels and lamps and toys and a thousand and one things, and the cane is wrapping lightly just a tap. Light, gentle, light, gentle, in time with the tick of the clock above the counter. She hears the swish of a second before the cane strikes her backside again, and she bites her lips as the warming tingle runs through her. One minute, he observes. You're distracting. She pants as the cane starts tapping time again. You were rule-breaking, he replies with a smug murmur. The last. She tries to ignore the stupid man and his stupid cane and his stupid hand, which is sliding up in the metal in the wood and his hand that is cupping her breast, and he's sliding that cane against her like it's his... The totem! she exclaims. The totem thing with the parts... His chuckle is pure filth, and he squeezes her breast through the dress, sending fireworks off in her body. The parts, he asks, and she just knows he's going to ask. What parts? <clears throat> you know. The pants at her knees and her breast. The stupid, stupid cane still sliding. The male parts. She almost swears when the cane dips, slips between her thighs just for a second, and her knees tremble. And here I thought you were an educated lady, he murmurs, gleefully and wicked. Call it what it is. She bares her teeth at him. Dick? She hisses, then jolts when smooth wood slides against her inner thigh. Ah he murmurs, then withdraws the stick to run the cool tip from her backside all the way down to her knees, making her thighs tremble. Now. His fingertips drum against her breast, and he hums. Where were we? Rose? She breathes, trying not to push against his hand, the cane, both, him, God, any of it. He rolls her nipple between his finger and thumb. Very good he murmurs, toying with her breast thoughtfully. So you've moved things, you open things, and you put your mouth that I asked you not to. She dares a look at him. You have things you want to put in my mouth? She says just before she can stop herself, and she sees the way his eyes darken. And God, if she isn't enjoying this just as much, as he is. The cane crocks against her backside again, and she stifles a yelp into a whimper. Distracting me, dearie? He rolls the cane over the skin, making her twitch as it crosses each and every stripe that's already there. 
She laughs breathlessly. Is it working? This time, the twitch rocks her whole body as he catches her low beneath the knicker line. And the warmth isn't just tingling across her backside, not at all. She breaks raggedly, her fingers squeaking on the glass of the counter. The rules. His voice is rougher now, and she knows she's not helping when she pushes herself back against the cane. And her hips roll. Which other rules? The counter, she whispers. Her eyes are on his face, and she smiles, small and wicked. I lied. I sat on it. The hand on her breast squeezes just as the cane cuts the air, and she can't swallow the squeal that escapes her. You're terrible, employee, Gold whispers, and his voice is as ragged as hers. His accent is stronger now. It always is when he's too, extract- when he's too distracted to think about it. His hand is sliding down the front of her dress to her belly again, and his cane is slapping sharply, rapidly against her, enough to make her backside burn. You could have broken, could have damaged. He must be distracted if he can't finish what he's saying, she thinks, squirming against his hand, his cane. Didn't, she pants. Nothing's broken. He slides his hand rudely, boldly between her thighs, and she bucks, startled. I don't know about that, Miss French. He breathes, and he's close by her side, almost pressing to her, and she can feel his fingers right through her knickers. My resolve is close to being shattered. Resolve? She breathes, trying to press against his hand. He drags his tongue up the curve of her ear, just as his cane slides across the crack of her buttocks. You broke the final rule in the worst way of all. His fingers slide beneath her knickers, and the cane moves slowly up and down, encouraging her to rock against him. I am very, very disturbed by you. The sound catches in her throat, a choked, wanting whisper, as he slides a finger inside her, just as his tongue explores her ear. His fingers are moving, slow, another, slow and deep, and just when she thinks he's forgotten, the cane stings her backside again, and her hips twitch and drives the fingers deeper. You are a wicked creature, Miss French. He whispers, striking her backside as if he was urging on a racehorse. Her hips are already moving against his hand, and the heat across her rear is only making her squirm more, fire shooting through her veins with each slap of wood on warm, tingling skin. Wicked and teasing and a troublemaker. She laughs breathlessly, whispers as he presses his thumb just, just there. His fingers are deep, another one, maybe three, she doesn't know, but there they are and stick and hot across her backside as she moves and it's delicious and wicked 
and he kisses her throat, leaving his mark, his mark on her, his fingers in her, his cane on her, hem, hem, hem on her, and she's breathless and quaking, and he's still pushing deeper, and she can't breathe, and her hands skim on the glass, and he's murmuring her name, not Izzy, not Izzy, Bell, Bell, and it's her name, and it's in her ear, and she can't help, can't stop, can't speak, and can't... His arms keep from her, falling when he can't, when her knees give out. His fingers are still wet, wet with her, and slick, and she can see them shimmer against her waist when he holds them up. Now, he whispers, do we understand the rules? She lifts her face to look at him and knows she must be flushed as he is. No more disturbing the boss. She pants out. She can't help the smirk that curls under her lips. Unless I want to be punished. He might have kissed her then, she realizes, if she hadn't gotten ahead of herself. As it is, he sets her down on the floor and gives her a stern look. And no sitting on the counter. The end. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, suckers. Hopefully that warmed you up. Because now we've got some real porn. Get ready. Lay back. Let's enjoy. I hear this one starts a little bit interesting. Let's see how it starts and let's see how it ends, huh? <sighs> In the heart of the city, there is a certain house. The young man had been coming to the house of Nine Doors for several weeks now, always asking for the services of the same man. Tonight, as Carlin prepares himself for his nameless client, and are not all clients of the house nameless by choice and courtesy, the master of the house stopped him. You say he never touches you, Carlin. That's right, sir. And yet he seems to enjoy himself fully. I think so. I certainly do. Do you? The master of the house, who was called Eos for his hawk-like qualities, ruffled the dark hair of his employee. I'm glad. What is he afraid of, I wonder? Carlin shrugged his muscular shoulders. Me? himself? People pay good money not to be afraid here. What's his secret, then? Carlin wished the master would not play with his hair that way. Attention from Eos was always piquant, frequently stimulating, and he needed to save his energies for the client ahead. I think he is ashamed of his desire, as are so many. But 
The master ran his finger down to his chin, and the man licked his lips. You know how to help him get over that, surely. He does not want me to. He made that very plain. He is set up straight. Does not want you to? Or... He shifted the emphasis to quite another meaning. Does not want you to. Really doesn't, Carlin explained. He has fingered his nipple. I love secrets. Shall I find this one out for you, sir? The master of the house said, I will soon make you fit to find out nothing at all. No, don't be offended. Don't go. I'll be sure you make good money tonight, but leave this one to me. Oh, how does he tip? Too high. Not a nobleman, then. Their fathers always teach them exactly how much. At the first door of the house, anyone may knock and be admitted. The porter did not speak, but made a question with his face, and the client nodded briefly. And so the porter led him, as usual, through the fourth door, which is the door of joy unasked for. It opens onto a hall hung with green and gold, like woodland in the spring, and always there is a faint scent of jonquils. In that hall waited a girl as fresh and young as dawn, with long hair down her back, but her form girded with silver armor, and a long hunting knife at her side. She knew this client did not want his hand and cloak removed, and so she simply escorted him up to the door, bound in brass. She knocked and disappeared, and the client entered the room. It was the usual room, dark with wood and red velvet, candlelit, cushioned. He began to take his gloves off, but stopped when he noticed the room's other occupant. Is there a mistake? He asked in a low voice. You're not precisely what I require. The slender man, lying decoratively on the floor cushions, wore the simplest of white robes. His close-cropped hair stood like a light brush. Although his eyebrows were dark, his hair was bleached almost to white. I am not Cartland, of course, sir. He cannot come tonight. If you wish to wait, another man, darker than I, more to your taste, should be free in a matter of an hour or so. But the master of the house thought that I might, sir. Oh, he didn't, didn't he? What does he know of me and what I want? He would not be a master if he did not know us all. The blonde stretched his body back against the cushions luxuriously. His robe opened on a subtle set of muscles, but the chest had been stripped hairless. No way of knowing whether he was blonde by courtesy only. I know it does not please you for me to join you in the bed, sir. With your permission, I'll stay here where you may see me clearly. The young client perched on the edge of the canopy bed. He moved his gloves, but that was all. He had smooth white hands of a scribe or a scholar of a or a dandy. His face hid in the shadows of his hat, his figure in the heavy folds of his cape. But his voice 
was a voice young, pitched low, without inflection, to cover its youth. What is your name? That will be your choice, said the blonde. Will you not name me so, for a friend, maybe, or a lover? You would let me do that? The client scowled. Very well, he said maliciously. I will name you for my dog. You will be Fluff. As you please, sir. Fluff is my name. No, no, he objected, not laughing. The notion did not amuse him. I don't care what you call yourself. Bliss is my name, the blonde said, if you would have it be so. I would have it be so, indeed. He gestured with one leather glove. Very well, Bliss, stay, but take off the robe. The blonde stood with a dancer's economy of motion, his eyes modestly cast down. Quickly, sir, or slowly. There was a moment startled silence, swiftly recovered from slowly, the client purred. And slowly, Bliss slipped the robe off from one shoulder and then the other, letting the soft cloth caress his skin, letting the client see the effect that the performance and the sensation were having on him. The client saw. Goodness, he squeaked. But, which Bliss knew Carlin sometimes required more encouragement, he already knew of their relative endowments. He watched to see if the young man appreciated them. He did. He was looking very hard at one in question. Bliss took two steps forward to the bed and saw the young man on it freeze as if he'd seen a dangerous animal moving. Bliss converted the movement into a langorous dance with the robe, trailing it over his body until the fine white cloth hung like a scarf from the end of his fingers. Stretching out towards the bed as if he were the trainer now, the young man and the frightened animal he was trying to coax toward him. And so he remained that way for one moment, for two, the white cloth waving faintly in the stillness of the room. What, the client demanded, am I supposed to do? It is an offer, said Bliss, an offer without words. You need offer me nothing, the young man said gruffly. I can have whatever I want. Bliss's hand held steady, and he met the client's eyes. And yet I offer it. The robe from my body, still warm and faintly scented, for you to do as you please, to smell, to stroke, to tear to shreds. Give it to me, quickly or slowly. The young man's hands were clenched, quickly. Bliss flung the robe at him. It unfolded in midair, landed against the young man like a spider's web, a gossamer net. The young man tore it from his face and crumpled into a bowl and breathed in deeply. And will you give me nothing in return? Asked Bliss. You don't need it. You're already randy as a buck in spring. That's not why I want it. Why then? So that you might see your hand on me. 
Mutely, the client held out one red leather glove. Bliss knelt to take it and pressed to his lips. The sharp intake of breath from his bed confirmed his guess. He ran the leather along his chest, across his thighs. Only then did he raise his eyes shyly to the client. The young man's hand had vanished inside his cloak to where a man might keep his dagger, and further down to where a man kept other things and kept them well. The hand stirred the cloth steadily, and his breathing was audible. Bliss suppressed a smile. He teased the glove across his nipples and gasped loudly at the sensation in tandem with the young man. Ah, yes, the client breathed. That's good. Go on. Bliss stood very still. His naked body was flushed and hard, gleaming in the candlelight. Only his breathing flashed light and dark. Go on, he asked, though he knew perfectly well what was meant. The client's eyes were bright and feverish. Yes, go on, he stopped moving. You must take your pleasure, he added gruffly. Alone. You know better than to ask that. Let us each. His hand stirred in his cloth, but Bliss did not move, and neither did the client. What was the matter, he asked. You mustn't. It doesn't hurt you. Bliss said, it pleases you to see it thus. It would be a poor servant to release it so quickly. You shall look your fill, and when you've had it to bursting, only then shall we concern ourselves with me. The client's free hand wrapped itself around the white robe. You will watch me? You like doing that? Very much, like a candle in a mirror. We increase each other's brightness. I want to watch you look at me. I like what looking at you does to me. <laughs> said the young man. Carlin is not so bold. He is a different man. You must not think because we have many skills that we do not have feelings here in the House of Delight. I'm not sure I believe you, but what difference does it make? None, sir. You are wise. When you enter this house, you leave the world behind, outside. It is dangerous not to distinguish truth from lies. Here, and only here, the lies are always for your benefit, and certain truths cannot hide. My truths are hid, the young man said, only some of them. Or will you lie and say I do not please you? You please me very much. You're beautiful, different, but beautiful. They all say that when they're excited. See, if you think so afterward. You're excited. Am I beautiful? I've no idea. Your hand is beautiful. Your voice is beautiful. Close your eyes. Bliss closed them. He felt the stir of air. heard the hiss of cloth, the sputter of wax when the candle wicks flickered. You may look. Both the young man's hands were folded on his lap, encased again in gloves. He was breathing hard, and his voice was mischievous, pitched high with excitement. 
I think you will go first after all. As you wish. Show me. The blonde man put his fingers in his mouth, twirled it there, and removed it, shining with spit. He ran it down his chest to his navel and through the thicket of hair that was indeed dark. It traveled in a straight line to the tip of the shaft and circled the hole where a drop of moisture already shone. The client moaned deep in his throat. Then Bliss's hand traveled gently over his own body touching the places an eager lover touches, sometimes gentle and sometimes rough, using the back of his nails and the tips of his fingers. His thighs, corded with muscles, began to tremble. Now, hissed the client. Not yet, Bliss answered faintly. He raised his hands over his head, curving like an arc of the moon, his whole body and its desire exposed. The young man growled, If I say now, then it's now. But Bliss stood poised upon his toes. The robe, he whispered. I have it. Bliss held out his arms like a woman just stepped out of the bath, and the young man stumbled off the bed, unfurling the gossamer robe. He let it fall from the trembling man's shoulders and took a step closer. Bliss's heat seemed to scorch the only part of him not covered. His face. Ease me, said Bliss, not moving. I cannot. Keep all your clothes, even your gloves, sir, if you will. But I beg you. How? I will show you. The young man stayed behind him. Lie down first on the cushions. Blistered as he was bid, hands at his side, his tense body seemed to lie only on the surface of the pillowed floor, straining upward. The young man stood above him, folding upon fold of cloth, falling across his body like a sculpture, but his gloved hands were twisted above the naked figure. Feast on me. Bliss said, and the young man knelt clumsily. The brim of his hat brushed Bliss's chest. When the flip of his tongue touched the tip of the other man's member, Bliss breathed deeply and did not thrust. How soft your skin is. The soft lips murmured against him, by which the naked man knew that he had indeed been right all along. He felt the delicate nibblings and trembled as he fought the urge to pull the mouth down over his throbbing cock. The strokes grew more delicate, longer, and more avid, and now, now there, sweet and complete, his fingers clenched despite himself. Finally, I wonder, he said, if you would find it distasteful to close your mouth around me. No teeth, you understand. And feast in earnest. There was no answer but the thing he desired, wrapping him in a sensation even he could not separate from. It was as though the layers of clothing above him had turned into a raving succubus, pulling and pleasure out of him like hunger itself finally fed. And yet he retained enough sense to lift his hand up to his lover's head, pressing and stroking the back of his neck, burying his fingers in his lover's hair, and one by one pulling the long pins that held in place so that his body arced helplessly up in chaotic ecstasy. 
the long, bright hair came cascading down around them both. Oh, his client cried. Oh, no. Hair clung to his damp face and tangled in the buttons of his coat. Never mind, Bliss said. It's nothing. The client wiped his mouth with the back of his glove, but he did not pull back when Bliss kissed the glove and licked some of the moisture off. Am I still beautiful? Bliss asked. Oh, yes, very. Come, then. The naked blonde rose lazily to his feet, drawing the other with him, floating across the red velvet bed. He held his patron in his lap. The fine hair got in his way, but he drew it back gently, disclosing one scarlet earlobe. Bliss pulled back, stroked it, and raised his sharp teeth to it. The other ear was pierced by a small gold hoop, which could not be drawn through the ear around the neck in a tiny point of pleasure. I feel dizzy, his patron said, fingers clenched. I feel crazy. Yes. The hand kept up the stroking. That is what it's supposed to feel like. The gloves were torn off. One hand reached under the cloak again. Together, Bliss said, reaching after it, and was not pushed away. The fingers met in the moist, hot darkness, where there was no man's treasure at all. For a moment, they clung together. Do it, she said fiercely. I want you to. She pulled at his hand and her clothes at the same time. Sweet mistress, he leaned into her, stilling her hands. I can do better than that. With practice hands, he unlaced the breeches. You will go, virgin, to your marriage bed, and still be satisfied here. At last, he uncovered the fair triangle, damp with sweet heat. A treasure for a prince, he said earnestly. Don't be impertinent, she snapped, or tried to. To her dismay, it came out languorous, flirtatious. I beg your pardon, madame, he said, and slid his finger down. She had been ready for a long time. He felt her stiffen. Not yet, he stopped. Not yet, she gasped. Not so soon. I don't want it over too soon. My dear mistress, he toyed with her delicate folds. With me, it is never over too soon. He ran his face across the sides of her coat, her rutched-up cloak, down to the soft skin of her naked belly. His lips were warm on her skin. His fingers stroked her arms, her legs methodically, gently, with a soothing rhythm that said that all was well. All would be well. If she would turn her body and its needs to him, and just as she was beginning to be a little soothed, his mouth moved down somewhere altogether. She cried out in awe. Nothing so living and warm had ever touched her there. His tongue darted like a fish amongst the coral shoals of her flesh, coral waving like fans in the deep sea waves of her pleasure. She could feel him straining with passion, could hardly believe anyone wanted her this way, wanted to do this with her, rocking her up and down, 
inside and out, somewhere beyond sight and sound. She had always had to control and tease herself, and now there was nothing to control. Feeling him slipping long, luxuriously, like there was nothing larger, nothing less slick and subtle as a man's might go. She let the world come apart. He was hard with excitement, but he channeled it all into her pleasure, his skill burning for her. She was bucking her hips without knowing it, riding him, being ridden by her own strong desire, as hard for him to keep control of a yearling as he relentlessly working to keep the pleasures coming in waves until she shook with it. And still he drove her. The pleasure drove her until she was writhing and pummeling him and crying her way to stillness. She lay at last at peace, sprawled across the taut-muscled naked man, with his thumb still stroking her side. Thank you. She gasped eventually, feeling something must be said under the circumstances. I didn't know that is. I usually like the look of men who are a bit more uh, heavily built. Next time, you must ask what you want. She said, still nervously meaning to explain, I am too young to marry. Tell me, I must be finished first, whatever that means. But every man I see, the soldier my dancing master, even the baker's boy. I know. He drew a mass of her hair through her hands. You will still enjoy, Carlin. He knows as well as I what to do for a lady of quality. She turned her bright eyes on him, and he laughed softly. Did you think you were the only one here at the House of Heart's Desire? Born among the great, she recognized authority when she heard it. Are you? She asked. I am, and your ladyship's servant for as long as you require it. Return to us whenever you wish. You are safe here, as you are in your nurse's arms. You will go to your noble husband, a virgin, and as a virgin as you were born. If I can wait that long. She muttered rebelliously, if you find that you cannot. There are ways to repair it, but you wouldn't like them. They hurt. And should a mistake call a new soul down from heaven, there are many ladies who have found their way here to send it back. She smiled and drew her hand down his spine. I will invite you to dance at my wedding, and I will. Come, he answered, kissing her hand, though it may be beyond the farthest sea. He added, Your time is not quite up. Although it was, and he took her in his arms and kissed her mouth as sweetly as a young boy would who did nothing of the many uses of the tongue. Now, said Elis, I shall summon a very dependable servant of mine named Hannah, who will help you wash all the sweat and moisture off you. 
She will particularly enjoy washing your hair, which, I am afraid, has become tangled and rather sticky. The end. Oh my goodness, that's come the house of nine doors. That's only one of them. That's the man who came but did not go. It's by Ellen Kushner. And that is our show. Holy crap. That was two solid hours, baby. Did a little song and dance beforehand. Whole hundred minutes of reading. Harley had to pause. Doing good. Thank you for all your tips. Thank you to everybody who came out on Twitch since nobody did. I very much appreciate it. To everybody who's hearing how good I sound, I just want you to know, once again, I fucking, like, worked all day today. Like, I had clients, and then I did chores and shit. So, like, I've been fucking working it all day, and I'm still ready to go. About to start drinking real heavy. Get high as a motherfucker. Do a little BoJack season five. Uh, I, I had a great time. Please, uh, please cross your fingers for uh, Colorado for Denver. Uh, it's it's uh, it's 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 coming up here next week, and there is going to be a live show next week, uh, same time, same day. It's uh, Friday, uh, ten p.m. Eastern. It's a week from now. It will be on both the Discord server. And, of course, uh, Twitch as well, since that's pretty easy. Thank you again to everybody, everybody who showed up, everybody who said something. Hope to see you next week. Everybody who requested. There weren't a lot of requests this week. I very much appreciate it. Uh, you guys are the best. Thank you, thank you, thank you. A lot of great requests this week. Poems and short stories and smut and all kinds of weird, interesting things that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I appreciate you. You will hear from me no later than a week from today at the next live show. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am going to disable the stream now-ish. So thank you again.